Rico Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello, and welcome to Eco Report for WFHB. I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Frank Marshleck. Later in the program, we will listen to part three by environmental correspondent Zero Rose as he speaks with a homesteader and sustainability educator from Spencer, Indiana, about her life journey in academia and as a nature lover from a young age. And now for your environmental reports. As part of its ongoing commitment to protect children and improving air quality, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency announced that Indiana is set to receive funding from through the EPA's first Clean School Bus Program Grants competition. The EPA selected First Student Incorporated for a nearly $40 million grant to purchase 100 clean school buses in Indiana, Illinois, Ohio, Michigan, Minnesota, and Wisconsin. The award, which is made possible through the President Biden's Investing in America agenda, will help the company purchase clean school buses in 12 school districts across the state. By accelerating the transition to low and zero emission vehicles, this funding will improve air quality for children and their families and advance environmental justice, all while boosting the economy and creating good paying jobs. Quote, today we're once again accelerating the transition to electric and low emission school buses in America, helping to secure a healthier future where all of our children can breathe cleaner air, end quote, said the EPA Administrator Michael S. Reagan. Quote, I've sat next to students on their very first clean school bus ride, and their excitement reflects the power of good policy. Thanks to President Biden's historic investments in America, thousands more school buses will hit the road in school districts across the country, saving school districts money and improving air quality at the same time. End quote. Quote, today's exciting announcement reflects this administration's ongoing commitment to the health and well-being of children through the Great Lakes states, said EPA Region 5 Administrator Deborah Shore. Quote, clean school buses not only provide students with safe transportation to and from school, but they also improve the air quality throughout the neighborhoods they serve, unquote. Indiana has not had a severe drought in years, so the grain crops have been excellent. Elsewhere, there has been terrible weather affecting the growth of grains. The New York Times reports that olive groves have shriveled in Tunisia. The Brazilian Amazon faces its driest season in a century. Wheat fields have been decimated in Syria and Iraq, pushing millions more into hunger after years of conflict. The Panama Canal, a vital trade artery, doesn't have enough water, which means fewer ships can pass through. And the fear of drought has prompted India, the world's largest rice exporter, to restrict the export of most rice varieties. 
The United Nations estimates that 1.84 billion people worldwide, or nearly a quarter of humanity, were living under drought in 2022 and 2023, the vast majority in low- and middle-income countries. Quote, Droughts operate in silence, often going unnoticed and failing to provoke an immediate public and political response, end quote, said Ibrahim Thiaw, head of the United Nations agency that issued the estimates late last year in his foreword to the report. The many droughts around the world come at a time of record high global temperatures and rising food price inflation as the Russian invasion of Ukraine, involving two countries that are major producers of wheat, has thrown global food supply chains into turmoil, punishing the world's poorest people. Another aspect of this problem is the rise in temperatures. Many agricultural areas depend on a supply of water through the summer. As the glaciers disappear, this will become a big problem. Most critically, the Asian economy depends on glacial melt through the summer. How long before we see summers with a small fraction of water during this portion of the year? With the Earth's average temperature speeding toward 1.5 degrees Celsius, Faster than expected, and global climate policy on a treadmill, an increasing number of researchers say it's time to consider a restorative pathway to avoid the worst ecological and social outcomes of global warming. In a study published recently in Environmental Research Letters, an international team of scientists wrote that reaching global goals would require focusing on ways to drive rapid changes in the ways people live, move, work, and eat, and on making sure that global wealth is distributed more equitably and on restoring and protecting biodiversity and ecosystems like forests, oceans, fields, and rivers that are critical to removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. The restorative approach should be considered soon because the pace of climate impacts to ecosystems and communities is speeding up, the author said. Climate extremes are outpacing decades of efforts to cap global warming with tools like carbon trading and offsets. Those are hallmarks of the green growth path mapped out by various United Nations-sponsored climate pacts like the Kyoto Protocol and the Paris Agreement, as well as other ancillary agreements. They all aim to keep growing in the global economy while reducing greenhouse gas emissions to net zero by 2050. There is technology available to reduce the threats but the public is not always convinced that they are attractive. Some wind farms have been canceled because some people complain they are ugly or that they are noisy or that they kill birds. Studies have shown, however, that noise level of a turbine is about the same as the noise from a refrigerator. Domestic cats kill birds at a rate 10,000 times that of wind power. Supporters of coal never raise the cost of, to human life expectancy. Up next, WFHB correspondent Elise Perry reports on the cold spell that hit the Midwest recently. We turn to Perry for more. An Arctic blast struck Bloomington this past week, putting temperatures as low as negative 5 degrees Fahrenheit with wind chills below negative 10 degrees. During the same time last year, the average temperature was 37 degrees Fahrenheit and the wind chill was around 30 degrees. Coming on the heels of 2023 being the warmest year on record, this cold spell is to be expected, according to James Ryan, an IUPHD candidate specializing in weather patterns and cold extremes. This has been one of the coldest weeks you get in a typical year, even colder than you'd find in a lot of years. So it is extreme, um, but 
nothing we haven't seen before in the Midwest. Um, a similar event will probably happen again in a couple years, and it'll probably keep being that way. He added that this weather is not a direct result of a changing climate. We live in uh, the northern United States, which is a region that gets cold sometimes. Um, the global average temperature has increased by about one degree Celsius or about two degrees Fahrenheit, which is a large and unambiguous signal. Um, but that's not enough to mean that the Midwest will stop having winters. Despite the Arctic temperatures, Bloomingtonians have been trying to proceed as normal. Bloomington native Kat Seltz said while it changes her daily desires and goals, she enjoys the weather. It makes me want to snuggle, makes me want to cook and read and really enjoy the sun coming into my house and all in my kitty cats. It makes me want to get outside, get some of this stuff, the sunshine and the vitamin D. And I got to say, you got to get out there. It's like taking a cold shower or taking that plunge in the lake and just give your system a teeny bit of a shock each day to get your metabolism woken up. It's so important. Seltz was raised in Bloomington, but has since lived in many places in the country. She said that this past week was nothing compared to Minnesota winters. Plummeting winter temperatures pose an impact on utilities we take for granted, such as water, vehicles, and electricity. Bloomington utilities suggest allowing water to drip from faucets, leaving cabinet doors open, and covering outdoor water lines to prevent pipes from freezing. For vehicle safety, check your vehicle's tire pressure and antifreeze levels, and keep a winter safety kit in your vehicle. In extreme cases, low temperatures can cause ice buildups on power lines, leading to power outages. In the case of a power outage, Interim Fire Department Chief Roger Kerr says it's important to be careful with alternative heating measures. Trying to stay warm, people start to burn wood or whatever they have, which can lead to uh, fires, especially for the unhoused if they're using uh, vacant buildings or their tents and trying to stay warm in those, it can, it can lead to some issues with that. So, you know, just got to be very mindful of um, not having open flames around stuff that can catch fire, you know, their clothing or their tents or that kind of thing. And then any other kind of devices, especially if people... Um, the heat goes out and they try to use like their gas stoves, they could get CO built up in their house, which can lead to uh, health problems. So people just have to be really cautious about uh, using alternate forms of heat to try to stay warm uh, other than their furnaces. If you are in need of a warm place to go, Bloomington Fire Department Stations 1 and 2 are staying open as warming stations until January 20th. So the Emergency Management Agency of Monroe County asked us if we would have a couple warming stations in our fire, in our firehouses. So we have two fire stations, this one here and one on uh, Franklin Drive, which is on the west side, that are warming stations from 8 to 6, which started on Saturday and runs to Saturday, this coming Saturday. So between those hours, somebody could come in, warm up, get a chance to kind of get the chill off, and then uh, the shelters open back up at 6, and then they could go back to the shelter in the evenings. Other warming stations are available around Bloomington and Monroe County. The full list can be found on WFHB.org. And now, part three of a conversation between Zero Rose and Aliyah Kuthan, a sustainability educator and homesteader from Owen County, about her formative years, education, and passion for environmental and social justice. We don't need to be taking a... <laughs> a step backwards when it comes to civil rights. We don't need to be taking a step backwards when it comes to basic human rights. That means basic human needs, you know, the right to clean water, the right to clean air, the right to uh, a job, a way to make a living. Um, those are basic human needs. 
and our infrastructure should really be based upon those basic human needs and the needs of our environment because that's what sustains us. When we start supporting uh, industries that don't support our environment and work against it and are destroying it, we're working against our own best interest here, you know? Uh, and we're allowing this to happen, and it's systemic. It is global, and it's systemic. It's something we really need to pay attention to and reverse because it's going to get out of hand if we don't. We need to take it back. We need to get a hold of the reins and rein that stuff in. When people uh, understand a certain amount of progress, you know, life expectancy, and things that got better as a result of industrialization, and really partly due to secularization that ended a lot of kind of conflict between groups and just allowed people to just be and they weren't so invested in who's right about this or that, you know, kind of way to be. And that has created this situation of relative peace and prosperity. And people can believe in that. They hear all the doom and gloom. They don't know what to do with that. They just want to shove it away. Um, and I think what needs to happen more, besides, you know, fighting the pretty much evil systems that are, destroying things for short-term greed and all that, is to demonstrate that there's another way that, you know, we've, we've sold everything out. We've farmed the job out. We don't want to be subsistence farmers anymore because that was a daily drudgery, and it was. There was a reason that people got a washing machine and, you know, wanted out from being constantly on chores. But they've also given up everything to these industries who is, you know, they're going to produce so many pounds of something and put it in a box for you to eat. And they don't care that much about what's in there as long as it's got enough ounces and and you buy it and consume it. And they make it addictive. You know, they even design the molecules to be addictive so you'll buy more. They make things planned obsolescence to break so you'll buy another one. And so it's about creating all these middlemen, you know, so there's all these skim points between you and your need. To whereas if every building, like there's grocery stores that have urban farms on top of them. Oh, what sense does that make when food doesn't have to travel 1,500 miles to your plate? If it, could, if it could be your own house or at least in your neighborhood or on the library or, you know, these various municipal structures that are, you know, kind of collective things that we've all invested in. Then we know where it's been grown. It, you know, we know what chemicals are in it. We don't have to trust. And Oh, a massive recall because one thing got into the, the stream here and it's everywhere. And so we're calling back millions and, oh, too bad if you didn't get the memo. That just reminded me of, of uh, what you're talking about there. reminded me of back in South Dakota, that presentation I was telling you about, um, the guy was talking about peak oil and our reliance on fossil fuels. He also had a book that he was passing around called The Transition Timeline. It was a transition from fossil fuels to a more localized economy. And and that meant, you know, growing growing foods nearby, having farmers markets, uh, using more bicycles, walking. Oh, my God, that's a concept, right? Walking places, 
instead of taking a car everywhere you go. Um, uh, taking a small scooter, uh, carpooling. If if you have to take a car, at least, you know, go with another person, you know. Don't just go by yourself. That way you're using half the amount of energy. You're using half the amount. Uh, you're, you're polluting half the amount, you know, of air or destroying, you know, spewing half the amount of carbon into the air that you normally would if it was two people driving to the same location, you know. So, you know, when I, I live in Spencer, and I, occasionally I want to shop at Kroger in Bloomington. I got a friend who we will ride together. I said, call him up, say, hey, you want to go to, to Kroger? You know, they got wine on sale, <laughs> so, you know, whatever. We'll just go together instead of, just me going by myself. Uh, there are times I come to town by myself because I, you know, I have, like now, having a meeting and, you know, that person would not be interested in that. But what I'm saying is reduce. It's not just about recycling. It's a reduce, reuse, recycle. And that was another thing that little town did, that transition town. It was called Totnes in England, um, in the U.K., somewhere in the U.K., Totnes, T-O-T-N-E-S. Uh, Totnes Town, that's what it was known as. And it was kind of, a, it wasn't a utopia, not by any means, because it was hard work, you know. People had to change. They had to force themselves to do things differently. Um, but they saw the value of it. And because they were able to visualize the value of it and, and visualize what it would mean for them in the long run, in the future, and mean for other people around them, they were willing to sacrifice. They were willing to make it work and willing to, you know, work a little harder to to make the changes that they needed to make in their daily lives. And, you know, eventually you get used to that. I've been, I was off the grid for four years when I first moved into my house. No electricity, no running water. I still don't have running water. I cart my water in. I collect rainwater. I have my own reverse osmosis machine, and I produce my own drink, drinking water that way. Um, I treat my own water. I test my own water. I have test kits. It's not impossible to do, you know. I don't use a lot of water. I know exactly how much water it takes to wash my hair. I know exactly how much water I need to bathe. I know exactly how much water I need to wash my dishes. And believe me, that's a heck of a lot less than you use when you have a sink and running water in your house because you just don't pay attention. You don't have to haul it. You don't have to work for it. You don't think about it. Out of sight, out of mind. But if when, it, when it's in your face and every day you're dealing with it, number one, you're more aware. Number two, it gets easier. As time goes on, you don't think about it. You just do it. And you are glad to do it because you know what it's doing for your environment. You know it's saving water. If I was in Arizona living like I'm living right now, people would be like oh, singing my praises. Yay. We, more, more of us should be doing that, but because this is a place where we get rain a lot, people don't think about it. When I, when I lived in South Dakota, there was a dry, dry spell, and there was also a, a time when Rapid Creek flooded. 
When Rapid Creek flood um, was full one year, I remember the Army Corps of Engineers came, or no, it was a National Guard. They came out with this huge reverse osmosis machine thing, you know, on wheels. It was like a small box on on, on a car. <laughs> they pulled it up to the the creek and they stuck a hose down in there and they sucked a bunch of water out and they ran it through this uh, industrialized re reverse osmosis machine to take to troops overseas. I thought, you know what? Come on. You know, we've got people who, who don't have enough drinking water in in Phoenix or, or in California <laughs> because the rivers are going dry. But we've got all this water here. We've got floods. We've got rain constantly. Oh, my gosh. You know, we've got more rain than we need. We could be taking water to some of these places. I would cost some money, you know, to do that. And then you've got the transportation of it, too, which isn't necessarily a good thing. And I'm saying, if people needed to survive... There's there's devices that can pull it out of the air. They're just from humidity. And, and we've actually been in somewhat of a drought in Indiana recently. And but it was just a couple of years ago that the downtown flooded, the flood of 21 in Bloomington. And uh, what I call the first casualty of climate change that we've had that's clear is a guy that drowned when his vehicle was washed into Switchyard Park. Two guys were in the car, it flooded enough, his car went down, you know, Jordan Creek, Switchyard Park. It was before it was put in as a park. You know, and a lot of that was just due to clogged gutters everywhere, not maintained. I've been in the neighborhood up in Muncie. Water's kept rising, water's kept rising. Oh, no, it's up to the level and it's getting in the car. Well, crap, we can't just look at it anymore. I went out there, knew where the drain was, started feeling for the stuff and pulling up the sticks and the leaves and the stuff. And that whole neighborhood drained in like 10 minutes. And so that was the difference between flood damage. Medication. Yeah, and, and just, and all that is, is everybody looks at that gutter and they see the leaves and the crap building up, and, but it ain't my job. And it, it's supposedly here, the property owner is supposed to take care of that kind of thing. But when they're renters, the property owner isn't there to see or notice. And just all these things are the tedious. That's, that's the stuff you used to have the teenager do as <laughs> the chores. And that's part of infrastructure too, you know? I mean, we've got this huge infrastructure bill right now. Money going out for this, money going out for that. But we need to maintain things that are sustainable. That's what we need to be doing. Maintaining those things that are sustainable already. They've got a huge thing going on all across the United States. Sustainable cities. People get awards for having the most sustainable city. Uh, you can apply for grants for sustainability for your city. Use that money, people. I mean, my God, use that money for solar panels, for maintaining uh, drainage systems, for for keeping uh, debris out of creeks, garbage out of creeks. You know, it's clogging up the runoff, you know, so it can run into the uh, the main river where it's supposed to be going. 
use it to clean up stuff. Use that money to give people jobs, to put people to work, to to do things that are going to benefit. This is In Nature. This is Juliana Daly with In Nature. Today, I will be talking to you about clams. There are eight clam species on the endangered list, and two are listed as threatened. The clams on the endangered list are club shell clam, fan shell clam, fat pocketbook clam, long solid clam, northern riffle shell clam, pink mucket clam, raid bean clam, and rough pig toe clam. The two clams on the threatened list are the rabbit's foot clam and round hickory nut clam. I love their names. Many clams fall into the mussel family but there is a difference between clams and mussels. Clams have rounded shells, similar to the shape of a fan, where mussels have longer shells with an oblong shape. Clams are considered more symmetrical. The names of these clams all refer to what they look like. All are found in Indiana in freshwater rivers and streams that have loose sand and gravel. Pollution from agricultural runoff and industrial waste is the primary reason for their decline. Clams were put on the endangered list beginning in the 1970s up to the present. The diet of clams is plant foods made up of algae and phytoplankton. The invasive zebra mussel population is also a threat if they get into the smaller streams. I personally have a memory of picking up clamshells while I was wading in a creek. Sadly, I haven't seen one in years. You've been listening to In Nature, a production of WF. For Eco Report, I am Juliana Daly. And I'm Frank Marshalek. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at EcoReport, we are currently looking for reporters, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And here are some upcoming events. Take the mysterious monument hike at Spring Mill State Park on Saturday, January 20th from 11 to 11.45 a.m. You will stroll along a stream to the mysterious monument near the Donaldson Cave and hear the story of the two Scottish gentlemen associated with it. Meet at the Lakeview Activity Center. Join the Hoosier chapter of Sierra Club and other members of the Indiana Conservation Alliance for a day of advocacy at the Indiana State House on Tuesday, January the 23rd. The event lasts all day. There will be a winter exploration hike at Monroe Lake on Wednesday, January 24th from 1.30 to 3.30 p.m. 
Explore the Kirksford area during this off-trail hike with no set path. You will have plenty of freedom to roam. Keep in mind that there are no formal toilets facilities. Register at bit slash ly slash weh dash jan24 dash 2024. The Whooper Wednesdays will continue at Goose Pond Fish and Wildlife Area until February the 21st. Come to the Visitor Center on Wednesday, January the 24th at 8 a.m. to walk the property and see if you can spot some of the resident birds, including the endangered whooping crane. Make sure to dress for the weather. A full wolf moon hike is planned for Friday, January 26th from 7 to 8.30 p.m. at Brown County State Park. You'll hike around Lake Ogle on Trail 7 while the naturalist shares history and folklore of the full wolf moon. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy. Today's news feature was produced by Zero Rose and edited by Kate Young. Juliana Daly assembled the script, which was edited by the Eco Report team. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Kate Young and Noel Hare Husky Schneider produced today's show. Brandon Blewett is our engineer. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Frank Marshalek. And this is Eco Report. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>